commonly debated, discussed thing is whether or not God knew the man was going to sin, why he created man anyway. And I hold true to the, or to the fact that, yes, God knew that giving free will to humanity was going to cause them to sin. And even in light of that, still created you with free will. Now, if you have free will, you choose what you do and what you don't do, and yet sometimes our lot becomes cast based on where we live, the family circumstances. All of that affects and influences what happens in us and through us. But at the same time, you still have a free will. You still have a choice. You still decide whether or not you're going to really believe that he's great or not. So we talked a little bit about the fact that from the very beginning of Scripture... God had planned to redeem you. So before, as soon as he created man, he knew man was going to sin. He wasn't lost. He wasn't confused. He wasn't at a loss for, oh no, what do I do now? He knew man was going to sin. He looks at you, and he loves you, and he knows you're a sinner. So if you didn't know you were a sinner this morning and that offended you, I deeply apologize. But also if you didn't know, ask your spouse, your children, your parent, the person on your left or your right, if they've known you for more than a few minutes, they can probably attest, yeah, you're pretty much a sinner. Now, knowing that, God still chose to create you, hoping, believing, and desiring to have a relationship with you. Now, here's the thing. He's not lost when you sin. He's not like, oh, no, that person is an addict. Oh, no, I didn't see that. He's not, oh, no, that person covets, that person's greedy, that person's selfish, that person's a murderer. He didn't, that didn't shock him. In fact, he gives us a whole list of things. Hey, don't do these, you guys. We talked about the Ten Commandments not long ago, and I said some people think it's just a big list of what not to do. You realize the first part of it is how to respond to God, but the whole second half of the Ten Commandments, the last six, are how you guys are supposed to treat each other. Because he understands, you guys are not good. But, in light of who he is, we get to come as not good into this loving God. And so the reason I like the prophecies of Jesus' birth and the prophecies of Jesus' death, and the reason I talk about them so much around Christmas and Easter, is this. God had a plan for you as an individual person person, not just corporately for us, but you as an individual person. God had a plan for you, and he knew who you were, and he knew you were going to sin, and as a sinner, he still loves and accepts you, which I don't fully understand, because sometimes I don't even like people, and yet he is unwillingly loving to people who sin against him. So last week we talked about how it talked about how he was going to be despised and rejected by those in authority. He was going to be silent. Sometimes we could learn a lesson from that. Maybe silence is what you should do sometimes instead of saying every thought that pops into your head. Sometimes I have to remind myself of that, Jeff. Don't say it. Don't say it. Don't say it. And I sometimes I listen and sometimes I don't. Somebody said one time to me. Not long ago, but they said, sometimes I feel like you don't even like people. And I just looked and I said, have you met people? (laughs) It wasn't that long ago. That person may or may not be in this room. (laughs) And then the third thing we talked about last week was recognition of sin. Jesus on the cross, he sees your sin. He sees the sin of the world. And in that moment, 
He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's realizing what sin does is it separates us from God. Your sin separates you from God. The sin of humanity separates us from God, and yet God desires so deeply to have a connection with you that he sent his son to be a sacrifice so that you, you could reconnect with him. So today we're going to look at three additional Old Testament passages that address the final week and the crucifixion. And the first one is Psalm 41, 7 through 9, and it says this, All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they despise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The fulfillment of this is in Mark fourteen ten, and it says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief, pri- to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. Remember, this isn't weeks after they spent time together. This is the night they ate dinner together in a room. And Jesus says, one of you guys is going to betray me. And they all go, not me, right? It's not me. They look at each other with accusation. They look at each other as flawed, as failures. And Judas gets up to go. And he says, I have to go. And Jesus says, go and do what you must. Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him. But not only does he know that Judas is going to betray him, when they walk in that night, the very beginning of that story, it tells us that Jesus washed their feet. It was commonplace in that culture that when you walked in, somebody washed your feet. They would have a tub of water right there. Remember, it's all dirt. They wore sandals. You'd have thought they'd have come up with a more appropriate footwear, but I guess it was hot. And so they went with sandals, so they're dusty. So when they walk in, typically, it would have been a 10 to 12-year-old, a servant, If they were really wealthy, it probably would have been a slave. If not, it would have been somebody that they paid that didn't have money. Oftentimes, people would actually sell their children for a period of time, two years, three years, four years, to do housework. At the end of that period of time, they'd have gone back to their own family. Did you know you could temporarily sell your kid in the early adolescent years? Would change our entire culture, wouldn't it? (laughs) I know some of you right now are going, wonder what I could get for mine, or wonder what it would cost me. Some of you are probably thinking, wonder what it would cost me. It might be worth it. Um, Let them go work at the neighbors for a few years. But that's who typically would do it. Somebody that was nobody. Somebody that was just overlooked. You'd walk in. You'd put your feet in the water. They'd take them out. They'd wipe them down. They'd dry them off. And then you'd leave your shoes by the door. And you'd go and you sit. And that night, they come in. And Jesus takes a towel and wraps it around his waist. He washes their feet. Jesus washes the feet of the very man that he knows is going to betray him in a matter of hours. And he knows it's coming because when Judas says, I got to go, he goes, go and do what you must. They shared food together. Food is critical. If you read through the Bible, food is talked about almost more than any other topic. They talk about eating together. They talk about food. They talk about the animals they raise. They talk about their vineyards. They talk about gardening. It wasn't just cultural It was that it connected people. If you know me well, you know that uh, one of the things I like to do is go and have breakfast or lunch with people. Because we can talk theology if you want, or we can talk other things, but you know what? When I'm sitting there and we're talking NCAA basketball, we're making a connection. Am I right? 
me and Linnell had a long debate. Both our teams that we picked to win are out. So <laughs> what are we going to do, Linnell? <laughs> but you make a connection over food. You make a connection over a meal. You make a connection when you sit there with somebody. Jesus did this for three years with people. It says they cooked fish together over a fire by the lake. It says they fed 5,000 people. Why did they feed that many people? Because people connect over food. You don't think that's a story that people continue to tell? We're telling it 2,000 years later. People connect. So they're having a meal together. It's a symbol of what we fill ourselves with, but it's also a symbol of life. Food is necessary for sustaining life. Most of us don't eat to live. Most of us kind of live to eat. It shows. But we love it. And we still gather around food. It's a celebration. Let's have cake. Or in my family's case, it's a Tuesday night. Let's get ice cream. We used to do ice cream when my kids did something well. And there was a week where we kept doing thing, having ice cream, and I looked at my wife and I said, when does it go from us celebrating with ice cream to, hey, look, here comes that pudgy family for ice cream again. Because <laughs> we're on the verge right now of being that family. But food is what we do. It's how we come together. And Jesus has a meal, and that night he goes out, and the man that he sat and he ate with betrayed him. And how many times have we walked in this place and said, oh, I'm changed But then the next day hits, and the next week hits, and three months later, we're struggling, and we're stuck in the very same sin again because we forgot that we met Jesus, and we ate with him, and we connected with him, and we had a relationship with him. But life is hard. And so we sit and we get so angry at Judas. I know people who have said, had Judas never been born, it would have been better. No, it was part of the plan, and Judas is just like you and me. You may not admit it. You may not want to admit it. But some of you are going to walk out of here today, and I know this is hard to believe, but you're going to get in your car, and someone's going to cut you off, and you're going to let them know what you think of them. And we're going to go right back into that same place where we were before. The Old Testament predicts a betrayal, and we still do that today. Second prophecy is, they mock him, they ridicule him. Psalm 22, 7 and 8, and I read out of Psalm 22 last week, but a different portion. But it says this in verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. In other words, why should we help him? Matthew 27, 41 through 44 says this. In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. The same people who he walked into the temple with, and he sat. At age 12, he was teaching in the temple, and they sat and listened. Because when people, when you tell people things they like, they sit and listen. But when you tell people they don't, then instantly, you're wrong. You can't possibly be correct. I can't tell you how oftentimes people will tell me one week, hey, that was a really good message. Thank you. Really spoke to my wife. In other words, she's bad, and you convicted her. But two weeks later, they come to me and say, I don't think you really are hearing from God anymore. Really? Was that painful for you? That's what I want to say. I don't say it, but I want to say, oh, that one hurts you, did it? 
Let's just be honest. That's what I want to say. I can't because I have to be nice and I have to try to get everybody to want to come here. But that's what I'm thinking. I don't hear from God when it doesn't align with what they want. I've told you before, your theology doesn't have to align with mine, but the good news is mine doesn't have to align with yours either. I have four basic tenets that I hold to, and as long as you can agree to those four, Jesus is basically, I'll put it this way, Jesus is who he said he is, he did what he said he did, and he's still coming back. Jesus is Savior, Jesus is baptized with the Holy Spirit, Jesus is our healer, and Jesus is our returning king. If we can agree on those four, all the other things of, is Job allegorical or literal? I don't know. You pick a side, and I'll go, okay, that sounds good. Somebody else will pick a side, and I'll go, oh, you make a good argument. Is Jonah true? Do you really believe? First off, I believe a lot of things. I believe a great fish could have swallowed him, but I also believe, yeah, it could have been an allegorical story. I'm okay either way. You know what? It doesn't change the reality that it was God-inspired. It doesn't change how I live day to day, and yet there's things in Jonah that challenge me and make me go, you know, sometimes I do that. I want my enemies punished more than I want them saved. I want the guy on the other side of that imaginary line that we drew as a country to have to pay the price because they came up against us. Now I'm getting into nationalism, and that's going to scare some of you. And I want you to come back next week, so I'll stop there. Third thing we see is, it says he gambled for his possessions in front of him. The biblical prophecy, again in Psalm 22, verses 17 and 18, I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Where he says, I can count all my bones, he's literally, David is saying, I am starving and I've got nothing, and yet they'll take what little I have from me. They want to take everything. They want to take my pride. They want to take my dignity. Viktor Frankl said, the thing that made him survive a concentration camp, the thing he saw in the survivors is this. They could take everything from us. They stripped us down, and they showered us with fire hoses. They put delousing stuff on us that burned us. He said, those who survived were the ones who didn't give up their dignity, and they didn't give up their hope. David says, you can take everything from me. I won't give up my hope in who my Savior is. John 19, 23 says this, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, and they gambled for his clothes. They gambled for his clothes. They did this Because Jesus says wealth doesn't matter. Well, if it doesn't matter, let's show them what it means to have nothing. Let's humiliate them. Humiliation was part of their purpose, part of their process. They wanted him humiliated. They took it all, and he lays it all down, and they do it right in front of him. And yet, He doesn't say, okay, God, get them now. He looks and he says, forgive them, Father, because they don't know what they do. But how many of us, our reaction when somebody sins against us is, God, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. I usually go, God, where's the justice in this? I've worked hard for you, and people are coming against me because they don't like the way I do something. Where's the justice? Instead of, God, forgive them, they don't understand what they're doing. Where's the love for them? 
Where's the unconditional, uncompromising love that I'm supposed to have for them in the midst of when they're causing me pain? I don't want to do that. I want to say they're wrong and I'm right. But Jesus says, no, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. So how does this apply to me? The deepest betrayal comes when we spent time and invested our lives into loved and prayed for and ate with and laughed with. That's why when our kids hurt us, it's so much deeper. When your spouse betrays you, it's such a deeper hurt. I've had bosses that I worked with that were kind of jerks. Anybody else ever have a boss that's a jerk? So I've had some bosses that were jerks. At the end of the day, I'm glad to leave and I don't want to hang out with them. They're just a jerk and I don't have to worry about it. But when somebody that I've loved and I've poured my life into does that, and they're just leaving, and they're a jerk, but people are sometimes jerks, why does it hurt so much more? Because you cared and you invested and you loved. That's why divorce is so painful. That's why separation from a child, when you, when you have a severed relationship with a child or a parent, that's why it's so painful. Because those relationships aren't supposed to be severed. That's why we see so much pain in our world. Because people are broken. And relationships get broken. I mean, if I'm told, oh, you, we don't need you as part of this thing I'm involved in anymore, that's okay. But if somebody that I have a relationship with says, I don't want you in my life anymore. That hurts. I need to ask myself, am I loving people because of what I get out of it? Or am I loving them because they're human and they deserve to be loved? Because sometimes I guard myself. I don't want to put myself out there because if I love this person and they walk away from the church, they walk away from me, they walk away from what I represent, that's just painful. That's painful. When I get together with pastors and we talk about life and we talk about deep, meaningful things, the one topic that comes up is when one of our elders, one of our council, one of our people that has been involved in our church for a long time walked away. Those things sting because you put time into them. I mean, people come and go from church all the time. I'm used to that. Because when you put time in with somebody... Jesus put time in, and yet he says, love them anyway. Engage with people anyway. It's a whole lot easier to not bother getting involved in community or to just say, people are wrong and people are terrible, so I'm just going to do church at home. And yet, over and over in Scripture, it says we know God in community. From the very beginning in Genesis, it's not good that man should be alone. That's not just talking about marriage. If you look at the context, it's talking about you being involved with other people, you being accountable to, you getting involved in a Bible study or a small group or some kind of connected thing that goes deeper than just a Sunday morning. And that's scary, and I don't like it. But he still tells me I'm supposed to. Second way this applies to me is when people mock me, we have a human desire to defend ourselves. Last week we read, and Jesus stayed silent before his accusers. 
never raises a hand to those who attack him physically. Yet he's with them every day in the temple, every day in the streets. And these people are the same ones who are walking with him. These are the people who went to listen to him preach. These aren't just random strangers. It's not like a bunch of busloads of people came from out of the territory. These are the people that every day he'd go and preach and it says the crowds followed him. And then suddenly, for some reason, that mob mentality takes over. And now we got to get rid of him. Got to get rid of him because he said things that made me uncomfortable. He started talking about me and what I need to do and how I need to change. And it's one thing if he's talking about the other guy, but it's different when he starts talking about me. Third way that this applies to us as individuals today is says he took what little he had and he gambled for it and uh, shows that everything that you have just goes to dust. Doesn't matter how rich you are, how much you have, you can do as much as you want. Tracy and I, we love to tour factories. I don't know if you are a factory person. We love to go on tours of things. We were in St. Louis and we went to the Anheuser-Busch Brewery. And uh, it's great. You get to see the horses. You walk through the whole thing, see how the process happens. But one of the things they show you is the mausoleum that August Bush, the original August Bush, which is over about 140, 150 years ago, that started the thing. And when he died, they built it. They built this mausoleum for him. And it cost, in today's dollars, it was in dollars of the 1870s, 1880s, whatever it was, it was like $2.2 million. Today's dollars, it'd be like $25, $30 million on his mausoleum. And literally, they said, they didn't know what to do with the amount of money he had when he died, so they just decided to put it into that. And you know what's sad? He's still dead. (laughs) Didn't bring him back to life, didn't sustain him for a single day, still dead, and there it sits. It's giant, it's big, it's pretty, but you go, huh, it's a lot of money to throw into somebody's grave. But some people, they got to try to take it with them, he still couldn't do it. What you have is going to turn to dust, and Jesus, while he's on that cross, and they're gambling for his clothes, he could have argued, he could have killed them, he could have done a lot of things, but it's a reminder that what do we value? Because if you don't know what you value, you can say what you value, but if you don't know, look at your checkbook. What does your money go into? Because that will tell you what you really value. And see, this starts getting touchy because people think I'm about to ask them for money. I'm not. I'm just asking, what do you value? And is it eternal? Does it go beyond you? Does it build the kingdom of God? Or is it just about building a kingdom of humanity? Because I'm, believe me, I, I get that whole college scandal that just broke recently. I get that. My daughter's best friend in elementary school, her parents, were on that list. I know people on that list. I understand. That tells you the world that we lived in in San Diego. That gives you a glimpse of the people that we spent time with. I understand wanting to do stuff for your kids. But what lasts and what is global and what is eternal versus what's temporal? Let's 
I'm not saying don't invest in your kids. My son's about to go to college. I'm going to have to write a check bigger than I want to. (laughs) I don't know how I'm paying for it yet, but we'll figure that out later. I'm not saying don't, but I'm saying make sure that you're investing in things that are eternal. Make sure that you're putting stuff into something that goes beyond you, that enhances the kingdom of God. I can't tell you how many people I know that have passed away and left nothing to the church. And I'm always like, I thought you liked what we did. And it's not about me. I don't get that money. My great aunt, my dad's aunt, she never married. And she happened to be born at probably the perfect time because all the men went away to war. So she started working for the railroad and she wasn't married so she had plenty of time to work for the railroads. And she worked for the railroads until 19, what was it, 1967, 68. And she retires from the railroad after roughly 30 years with the railroad. Good pension. She retires and she gets a call because at the time she was the only female executive working for the, um, I can't even remember which line it was, but she was the only female executive and it was based on the West Coast. And rail used to really be something. She didn't work passenger rail, she worked freight. And she was the first female secretary of transportation for the state of California. She got named by Ronald Reagan. And she worked then as the secretary of transportation for the state of California and worked a whole career doing that then. And in 1981, she retired from doing that and moved back home and bought a trailer. We're not talking a fancy, like, trailer. We're talking trailer, trailer. Bought 18 acres that touched, couldn't even get the property right next to Grandpa's farm, but like touched kind of like a back corner. And that's where she lived until she had to go into a home when she turned 90. And my dad would still go and pick her up and bring her to church because she wouldn't drive in the winter. For years, my grandpa did. Then my grandpa died. My dad took it over in 87 and would drive her. And when she passed away, she left everything she had to the church. And I was like, Dad, she left you nothing? He's like, nope, but... Everything she had. So, and what's amazing is, she's a little old lady. 300 and some thousand dollars she gave to the church. Now, I'm not saying to do that. What I'm saying is, she saw something greater that took who she was beyond this simple life she lived. She died, she was 99? And then she actually, 98, she actually took care of her younger sister who was special needs and most people would put him in an institution but they decided never to put her in an institution. So she actually lived nine years after continuing to live off that same money and she never worked and she was perfectly happy. I remember going the last time I saw her, she was at church. They, they had pews but she couldn't sit in a pew. She kept falling over so they had a little chair with arms. She was I don't know how old was she, 99, 100, 101. And they'd put her in this little chair. They'd get, my dad would get her to church. She'd sit down, she'd fall asleep. They'd wake her up afterwards and take her out. <laughs> It'd be a two-hour nap for her. She liked to stay all the way through Sunday school and second service. So she'd be there, fall asleep. They didn't wake her up until the end of second service. But everything they had, they believed in giving it back to the kingdom. Again, I'm not asking for everything you got. I'm asking, are we giving what we can to something greater than ourselves? Because the worst thing you could do is live this great life, but not leave that life-giving legacy. 
that life-giving legacy comes when we invest into people and when we invest into something greater than myself. And that's what I desire for each of us, is to, when we do our memorial, when we do our funeral, to hear about, yeah, he gave to me of his time. He gave to me of his energy. He gave to me. He loved me. I felt cared for by him. And it's something beyond ourselves. Because the truth is, I'm only one guy and I can only do so much. But we are a community that can love our community so deeply that they want to understand who we are and what we have and why we do it. So here's my questions that I asked. Got two of them today. Can I, should I, alter my response to those who come against me? What is my response and how do I deal with it? And number two, am I able to oppose those who love me and who, or I'm able to love those who oppose me and my core beliefs when they're in my face with their beliefs. And what does this look like? It's like I say, I don't have to agree with everything everybody else does. I can still choose to love them. I don't have to agree with what they say. I can still choose to respond with love. And that is so hard. It is so hard when we feel like we've been taken advantage of when we feel like we've been abused, when we feel like we've been wrongly treated. What does it look like if I'm going to love people unconditionally, even if they don't love me? That's what I've got to figure out, how to do that, and what that's going to look like, and how that changes the way I react to people. God, thank you for this day. I thank you for the fact that you had a plan for our redemption from the very beginning, that you had a purpose for us, that we exist so that we can come in contact and connection with you. And God, that those who doubt, that doesn't have to affect our faith. Those who deny, we can still choose to love them. But God, that we would choose to love people in such a way that they want to understand who you are and what's different about us. Let that be who we are in your name. Amen. Um, two things today I want to, as you're walking out the door. Number one is, if you're part of our church um, and you haven't yet gotten your directory, go ahead and grab it. We'll have them in the lobby. Amy, can you make sure that those are back there? And um, remember, this is for personal use only. It's not for you to use for sales calls or anything else. But it's nice for, as you decide, you're going to start having breakfast with everybody in the church over the course of a year. That way you got their contact information. You can start making your calls. And um, the second thing, I've been asked several times, but our Mexico information meeting will be Tuesday, April 9th. That is for information only. You're not signing up for anything if you come to that. That'll be at my house. If you've gone in the past and say, nope, just give me the written forms, that's fine. If you've never gone but you think you might have questions, come on out April 9th. It's a Tuesday night. It'll be at my home with my wife. We also share a home. Um, I would say my house and people go shouldn't you say your house I'm like wait what I don't know <laughs> sure at our home and uh, if you're interested in going to Mexico or just want more information about what we do there come on out again I say people of all ages are welcome but understand this is not an easy trip we sleep on a concrete floor um, 
I let you bring a mat or a pad of some type, but it's still a concrete floor. It's last year, the hottest day was 116, but four days after we left, they set a record of 134. So it can get a little warm, a little toasty, if you will. Um, it's uh, a lot of what we do is outside. So understand and know your limitations, but know that you're welcome and invited. And I know that some people are like, well, I can't get off work or I can't go because it's too hot. Then just financially support the students that go. It's mainly students that go, which is great, but anybody and everybody is invited. And uh, I welcome you to go, but just know I'm not, it's hard. (laughs) Some people are like, oh, so what do we go see? Not much. We go down there and we start working. (laughs) That's what we do. so, but I do invite you, and if you want more information, that meeting is April 9th at my home. You can email me or call me if you need my address, or if you're a regular attender and have a directory, I'm listed. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.